It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows LIVE presents What's Your Prescription for Balance? Featuring your host, Dr. Glenna Calder. Welcome to Watch Your Prescription for Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Glenna Calder. Watch Your Prescription for Balance was created to enrich your mind, body, and soul and to help you make educated and empowered decisions about your health. Tonight, we have a special guest, Dr. Brian Raid, a colleague of mine who works in Saxo, Nova Scotia, where he has his naturopathic practice. If you've been listening to Watch Your Prescription for Balance the last year, you may have heard him in November when he came on the episode for, as a guest to speak about chronic pain. So join me in welcoming Dr. Brian Reed. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. And are you getting a a damp, cold day in Sackville also? Oh, yes. It's nice and damp and nice and chilly. So we haven't got quite of a spring yet, for those of you who aren't living in Nova Scotia. So we're hoping we're just going to go right into the summer. So tonight we have Dr. Brian discussing the biomedical approach to autistic spectrum disorders. Dr. Raid has taken advanced courses in biomedicine and also in autism. So we're here tonight to discuss that. So, Brian, I'm going to first ask you if you could tell us how the biomedical approach differs from the approach of conventional medicine and also some parts of naturopathic medicine. Sure. So the biomedical approach to autism looks at autism as being a functional disorder that is possible to be treated. And what we look for as biomedical practitioners is underlying causes that might be resulting in in autism being expressed in a child. So, for example, things like nutritional deficiencies or food sensitivities or microorganism overgrowth in the body of things like parasites or yeast or bacteria or certain environmental toxicities like heavy metal accumulations or certain biochemical abnormalities and things like the methylation cycle or other physiological processes in the body can all potentially, uh, singly or in, in, uh, together in part, lead to an expression of autism in a given child. So the biomedical approach to autism looks at trying to identify those underlying causes and then treat them with the intention of improving the overall clinical presentation of the child. A conventional approach to autism tends to focus more on managing some of the uh, challenges that a child on the autistic spectrum or or an adult patient on the autistic spectrum might have in terms of uh, learning difficulties or in uh, dealing with certain day-to-day tasks. So, for example, things like um, speech therapy or occupational therapy are things that the conventional medical approach advocates to help uh, children to or, or adult patients on the autistic on the autistic spectrum um, have uh, greater ease in terms of uh, doing different day to day things and learning and, and functioning in our society. Um, conventional medicine also sometimes offers 
certain pharmaceutical interventions to help modulate some of the um, behaviors that certain children on or adult patients on the autistic spectrum might express. So, for example, if um, you know, children are having issues or patients are having issues with um, extreme behavior like, uh, say, violent behavior or um, extreme hyperactive behavior or the child just um, won't sleep at all through the night or they won't stop screaming 24 hours a day, then there are certain pharmaceutical interventions that can really help with those things. So a biomedical approach looks at trying to find the root cause or the underlying causes of what might be contributing to an autistic spectrum expression, whereas the conventional medical approach tends to look at more of, of kind of a damage control um, buffering type of a, uh, type of approach. And it's not to say that the two approaches are mutually exclusive, um, you know, speech language therapy and um, occupational therapy and using pharmaceutical drugs in certain circumstances can be really, really helpful for children on the autistic spectrum. So a biomedical approach is not exclusive to a conventional one. Um, however, uh, it, so it tends to work the best when they're combined. A naturopathic approach is really basically what a biomedical approach is. Uh, when I first did my uh, training in biomedical, uh, biomedical approach to autism, I was doing my training with a group down in the States called the Autism Research Institute, and they do a certification course for something called uh, um, becoming something called a DAN doctor. Uh, DAN doctor, DAN is an acronym for Defeat Autism Now, and that was the name of the group that initially developed uh, many years ago. It was uh, groups of parents and doctors and PhDs and other types of healthcare practitioners who were getting together saying, what, sh what are we going to do about all these kids with autism, like either their own kids or uh, family members' children or whatever it happened to be. And they got together and started brainstorming and working on treatments, and they formed this group called Defeat Autism Now, and they eventually developed a training program where uh, doctors like myself could go and learn how to treat patients with, on a biomedical level. And when I went to do my first training course um, several years ago, I, I was sitting back thinking, geez, they're just teaching, trying to teach people how to practice naturopathic medicine. It's looking for the root cause. It's using individualized treatments. It's using you know dietary changes and uh, nutritional supplements and anti-yeast protocols and things like that. So a lot of the stuff that I was already doing in practice. But the big difference is that the biomedical approach just takes it to the kind of takes naturopathic medicine to the next level in terms of trying to address. Um, uh, help patients on the autistic spectrum. So there's a lot of similarity between a biomedical approach and a naturopathic approach. Um, it just it, it sort of takes the um, kind of, uh, the biomedical approach allows us to dig deeper and it allows us to have a broader understanding of what's going on in patients on the autism spectrum. Amazing explanation. I'm in awe. You've covered it all. Thank you. <laughs> oh, we're done, I guess. That's, that's the end of the interview. Oh, no, that was excellent. Okay. Anybody listening, from myself as a naturopathic doctor, Dr. Ray just gave an, an excellent explanation of the differences in, from the biomedical approach to conventional medicine and also the difference between just practicing naturopathic medicine or also learning about biological medicine. Dr. Ray, do you see in your practice patients with autism, do they often combine conventional medicine and naturopathic medicine? It varies. Um, children who are displaying, uh, and, and I'm just going to clarify right now that I, I keep on saying children because the you know 99%, 95% of the patients that I treat on the autism spectrum are children, like pediatric patients. Um, and I'm going to keep saying um, children, but I do mean any individual on the autistic spectrum because, of course, children eventually grow up to be adults. So, um, so just to clarify that, but uh, for 
uh, patients that I treat on the autism spectrum who are uh, who have historically displayed really um, uh, severe uh, symptoms in terms of like typically more behavioral symptoms like you know tendencies towards fairly extreme um, violent behaviors either towards themselves or others or just really aggressive behaviors in general. Um, they're oftentimes presenting to my practice on some type of pharmaceutical intervention. Um, although the vast majority of them are not. Um, so a lot of children on the autistic spectrum don't require uh, pharmaceutical intervention, like they don't need to be sedated or to work with other behavior modifying um, treatments. A lot of the patients I treat are working with um, uh, uh, speech therapists and occupational therapists, and that's great. You know, those things really help a lot of patients. So I'm always happy when they are working with those things already. So that's a common thing that I see. Do you see many individuals with autism in your practice? I do, yeah. Um, about 20% of my practice is patients on the autistic spectrum, so it makes up a pretty significant portion. Um, I have a wide range of focuses in my practice. I treat a lot of patients with cancer, um, chronic pain, which we talked about back in November. Uh, I treat a lot of patients with chronic infections like Lyme disease and patients with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivities. So I really have a focus on patients with chronic symptoms. And every sometimes I think, you know, like, well, maybe I should just focus more on just seeing autistic patients in my practice. But what I find is that the more that I learn about other conditions that seem to be totally unrelated to um, autism, the more that I wind up learning about the underlying mechanisms of what's driving autism in the first place. So some of the things that I learn at, you know, conferences that I go to um, to learn about integrative cancer therapies, I say, oh, that's totally applicable to my autistic population or the same thing when I'm learning about chronic infections. Uh, what I eventually learned um, a, a few years ago is that a lot of, uh, maybe not a lot, but a significant portion of um, individuals on the autistic spectrum actually have chronic infections. Uh, many of them have Lyme disease or other other types of chronic infections. So it, what I, I feel that the fact that I treat a wide range of different condi conditions actually makes me better at treating the autistic patients that I do have. So so I don't plan to um, completely specialize in just autism at this point because I think that might ultimately do uh, my patients a bit of a disservice in the long run. The next question I wanted to ask you was what diagnostic tools and testing do you use with patients on the autistic spectrum disorder? Um, there's a number of different tests or tools that I have access to, um, and the ones that I select are really dependent on the individual patient that's in front of me. So. Um, I'll kind of give a brief um, synopsis of some of the different tests that I use, but it's important to note that not every patient on the autistic spectrum needs to be tested for all of these with all these different methods. Um, it's very common for individuals on the autistic spectrum to present with gastrointestinal disorders, and as such, it's pretty common for me to run uh, something called the comprehensive parasitology profile. Um, the comprehensive parasitology profile is a stool test, and that looks for levels of um, yeast and parasites and pathogenic bacteria that might be present in the gastrointestinal tract. It's also a useful test to tell us about the levels of good bacteria in the gastrointestinal tract, too. Um, a lot of parents come in, and they've you know, heard through the grapevine or heard on message boards or whatnot online that probiotics can really help. And it's uh, oftentimes we'll look at the um, stool test of a patient who's been taking a probiotic for some time and we'll see that their levels are still low. And it just really speaks to the idea that you need to get good quality supplements, particularly probiotics, because as I know, you know from practice, just as I do, um, there's a wide range of uh, quality and efficacy out there. So the stool test is a good way to help 
determine whether or not um, there are adequate levels of good bacteria living in the gut as well. I also frequently test patients for something called small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is another gastrointestinal issue that is unfortunately not picked up on a standard stool test. Um, Small intestine bacterial overgrowth, as the name suggests, is characterized by an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. And the small intestine really shouldn't have many bacteria in it. And if children or adult patients on the autistic spectrum have elevated levels of bacteria in their small intestines, it can cause all manner of gastrointestinal symptoms, whether it's abdominal pain or gas and bloating or constipation or diarrhea. Um, But it can also have significant impacts on overall behavior as well. And so if there is a small intestine bacterial overgrowth, it's really important to identify that, um, in part because we want to knock down the levels of microorganisms, but it also tells us whether or not the patient needs to work with something called the GAPS diet. The GAPS diet is a special diet that helps to kill off bacteria in the small intestine, but it can also have a really great impact on overall uh, symptom presentation and overall um, uh, neurological function in individuals on the autistic spectrum. The challenge with the GAPS diet is that it's a fairly involved diet. A lot of parents um, or caregivers for individuals on the autistic spectrum know that a gluten-free, casein-free, sugar-free diet tends to be quite beneficial for children on the autistic spectrum. A GAPS diet can be even more beneficial in some cases, but If the child doesn't have a small intestine bacterial overgrowth, in my experience, it's much less likely that the GAPS diet is going to be an effective diet for them. So rather than parents putting in or caregivers putting in all the extra effort to put a child on the GAPS diet, we can do testing first to see if it's worth putting in that extra elbow grease because as anyone who... Everyone who has children on the autistic spectrum or knows a child on the autistic spectrum, we all know that trying to change their diet can be very, very challenging, even more challenging than changing the diet of any given child. So it's a really useful test to screen for whether that would be effective or not. Um, I also do testing to look for any biochemical um, uh, abnormalities that might be present in an autistic patient's um, uh, physiology. Individuals on the autistic spectrum often have, oftentimes have much higher needs for certain nutrients in their system. They oftentimes have issues with um, something called mitochondrial function. They oftentimes have issues with something called methylation function. They oftentimes have um, imbalances in their neurotransmitters, which are the hormones that modulate nervous system function. So there are tests that we can run to see what's going on on a biochemical level in their bodies. Um, I always tell patients that you know when I first see you, I can you know, get a sense of what's going on maybe with your digestive tract. Um, I can get a sense of what's going on with your immune system to some extent. I can get a sense of what's happening um, to some extent with your detoxification capacity, depending on the symptoms that are being presented. However, I don't have you know, magical um, glasses that allow me to see all the way down into your cells to know what's happening biochemically. And so we can do tests to try to get more information as far as that goes. So there are three tests that I uh, will commonly run. One is called a urine organic acids test. One's called the urine amino acids test. And another one's called a methylation profile. And so those tests in combination give us a wealth of information about what's going on uh, biochemically inside of an autistic patient's system. And then it really gives us almost a blueprint to tell us exactly what types of supplements or treatments they need to be working with to really help improve their overall clinical presentation. So one of the challenges is that there are so many supplements and treatments that can be beneficial for individuals on the autistic spectrum. The trick is trying to find out what are the best ones uh, for that individual patient. And just trying to guess or doing it through trial and error can just take forever and 
people waste a lot of money and it just becomes logistically challenging. But if we have test results telling us what specifically is going on with the biochemistry or physiology, then we can make a really uh, detailed and fine-tuned treatment protocol. Um, the last test that I'll mention is that um, a lot of individuals on the autistic spectrum have trouble with their detoxification capacity, and as such, it can be hard for them to clear heavy metal residues from their bodies. And so I'll oftentimes do um, urine heavy metal testing on uh, autistic patients, and it's very common in my experience to see elevated levels of lead and or mercury in their systems. And sometimes we see really good clinical improvements when we do uh, work to try to flush those metals out of their bodies. So those are uh, the main the most common tests that I'd run in my practice. Excellent. So I, the first question I have is for those listening, those individuals who are aware of probiotics and how the large intestine can get into a dysbiosis, what would um, trigger you to decide to look at the small intestine rather than the large intestine? That's a really great question. Um, <clears throat> to be honest, it's really hard to differentiate between the two because the symptoms of small intestine bacterial overgrowth can mimic all the same symptoms of um, uh, a, a, a dysbiosis in the large intestine. So it's really hard to figure that out. Um, sometimes it's um, just more of a clinical hunch that can come up sometimes, um, but more often than not, it's usually when parents come in and or they come back for a follow-up visit and they say, you know, we've been doing the gluten-free, casein-free diet, sugar-free diet, and we haven't noticed massive changes. Or um, if they come back and say, you know, the digestive symptoms haven't improved fully or they haven't improved all that much with, say, uh, you know, dietary changes and probiotics and things like that, that's usually a clue for me that there's some kind of dysbiosis going on. Um, with the test for small intestine bacterial overgrowth, we can sometimes get a clue as to whether there's small intestine bacterial overgrowth by doing a stool analysis. And there's a certain parameter that can be looked at in a comprehensive, um, rather in a parasitology profile, where if there's an overgrowth of what are called commensal bacteria or neutral bacteria on the stool test, that, in my experience, is a really good predictor to see if, to uh, help us to see if a patient might have a small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So if we see that parameter on a stool test, it oftentimes will drive me to say, maybe we should do the testing for small intestine bacterial overgrowth to see if that's what's going on. So clinically, it can be a bit challenging to determine if it's small intestine or large intestine. Um, I've been differentiating between the two enough where I can sometimes just get a clinical sense of what's going on, but it's it's really hard to um, pinpoint specific symptoms to one um, whether it's large intestine or small intestine. Excellent. So it's a lot of clinical experience that ha that's helped you narrow it down to point, to point out which test would be the most accurate or the most helpful for the next step. Yes. Okay. So what are the common findings that you see in your practice with patients who are on the autistic spectrum disorder as a result of your testing and your assessments? Um, really common to see yeast overgrowth. I'd say about 70% of all of my autistic patients uh, test positive for yeast when we do a stool test. Uh, very common to see uh, methylation um, issues as well. So methylation uh, refers to the methylation cycle, which is one of the um, biochemical systems in the cell that could be potentially off kilter in, in an individual on the autistic spectrum. <clears throat> and so that's something that comes up all the time. Uh, one of the strongest therapies that I use or that I've seen uh, the effects of in my practice like that I use in my practice is working with um, high doses of something called methylcobalamin, which is a specific form of methyl B, or of vitamin B12. And by <clears throat> using the methylcobalamin treatments, 
I've probably seen the most dramatic or drastic results in a very short period of time with some patients who have um, worked with that type of intervention. And with that type of intervention, it largely works to help correct deficiencies in the methylation cycle. So um, when I when I test for methylation defects, it's very common to see them in children on the or patients on the autistic spectrum, and it's oftentimes one of the things that gives us the biggest bang for our buck, so to speak, to see um, uh, the most dramatic changes um, as quickly as possible. Um, things like diet have a huge impact too, but it can sometimes take a few months to see changes with methyl B12 treatments. I find that we can sometimes start seeing changes even within a week, sometimes even a couple of weeks. Um, which is always really exciting for um, the parents to, uh, um, or the caregivers and myself as well because everybody loves seeing good treatment results. So <clears throat> in terms of results that I see, uh, yeast overgrowth and methylation defects are probably the most common things that I see coming up. But whenever we run other biochemical profiles like, uh, say, an organic acids test or a urine amino acids test, there's always something that comes up. Um, nobody, I've never seen a perfect, you know, perfectly healthy result come back, but it's very common that we'll see quite a few different things come up, which really speaks to the idea that autism is characterized by a lot of biochemical abnormalities that are really only, in my opinion and my experience, really only able to be addressed through um, you know, nutritional interventions and certain supplements and, and a lot of the kind of naturopathic therapies that make up um, the, the lion's share of a biomedical approach. So do you think with patients that are on the autistic spectrum disorder that have yeast overgrowth in their body, what do you think is causing that in those specific individuals? I think that diet is a really large part of it. And if you're eating, if a person's eating food, whether they're autistic or not, um, if a person's eating food that their body has a hard time breaking down, then it tends to lead to inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract, and that compromises the immune system function in the gastrointestinal tract, so it makes it easier for microbes to overgrow in the gut and intestinal tract. Um, eating foods that have a hard time breaking down also typically leads to an incomplete um, breakdown of those foods, and so it provides an easier food source for microorganisms like yeast to start overgrowing in the gastrointestinal tract as well. So I think that um, I think that food sensitivities play a really big role um, in the formation of yeast in autistic patients. I find that a lot of my autistic patients um, are also, have also been born via C-section, and it's not to say that C-sections cause autism by any means. Um, however, ch- uh, what we know from um, scientific research is that children who have been born through C-section, unless they've started taking probiotics very early on in their infancy, they oftentimes have uh, lower levels of good probiotics in their gastrointestinal tracts. Um, in, the, in the large intestine in particular, there are many, many um, bacteria species that uh, live there, and certain ones are fairly neutral. They're just almost space-occupying strains of bacteria, whereas other ones are specifically probiotics, which really probiotic, um, you know, the the breakdown of that word is, um, you know, giving life. So when um, uh, probiotics really give a lot of health benefits, and one of the health benefits is that they help to offset the growth of yeast and fungus and parasites and things like that um, in the large intestine, so what I find is that um, if a patient has had, was 
born via C-section, then oftentimes um, they're going to, in my experience, they're going to be at an increased risk of developing a yeast overgrowth too. Um, the final thing that I would say is that, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of patients on the autistic spectrum test positive for heavy metals, particularly mercury and lead, and there seems to be a clinical correlation between elevated levels of lead and mercury in the system and elevated levels of yeast too. So I think between diet, possible history of C-section, and um, heavy metal accumulation, I think those are a few uh, reasons why we're seeing yeast overgrowth in the gastrointestinal tract commonly. You said 70% roughly in your practice in you see an yeast overgrowth in individuals with the autistic, in the autistic spectrum disorder. What percentage would you say of your general practice would, has a yeast overgrowth? Hmm. Um, well, I'd say that patients who present with gastrointestinal disorders, I'd say probably... 40 to 50% of them maybe um, in my general practice, bearing in mind that not all patients have gastrointestinal symptoms, I'd say maybe 15 to 20%, give or take. So I'd say it's certainly more prevalent in, in the autistic um, population than, than, say, the general population that I'm treating at least. Okay. And in your professional opinion, do you believe there is a link between vaccinations and autism, specifically the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccination? Um, I've looked at sort of both sides of the fence on that question, um, and to be perfectly honest, there's, it's, it's just a very, you know, it's a very heated uh, sort of topic. Um, people can get really passionate about it, and I think that at the end of the day, it's good to look at the observational evidence suggesting a link, and also this, what science has said. Um, I've looked at the research studies that have um, linked the MMR vaccine to um, intestinal inf um, inflammatory disorders, and I think that the research, the evidence seems to be quite strong, suggesting that that vaccine in some cases in some populations can lead to intestinal inflammation. And if you have intestinal inflammation, you get nutrient deficiencies, you get uh, or an increased risk of nutrient deficiencies, an increased risk of, say, yeast or other pathogenic microorganism overgrowth. Um, you can um, have an impairment of neurotransmitter production because most of our brain chemicals are formed in the gastrointestinal tract. So a lot of, so those three things alone are common underlying issues in individuals on the autistic spectrum. So you could certainly say there might be sort of a, um, a correlation um, based on, on the fact that it can potentially cause intestinal inflammation. Um, but I would say more powerful to me than, say, the, let's say, the um, indirect scientific evidence suggesting there might be a link is that um, in my practice, I have so many um, parents who come in who say my child was developing perfectly healthy, perfectly, you know, uh, neurotypically, <clears throat> neurotypically, and then, you know, at 12 months or 18 months or whatever it happened to be, they had a vaccine, they had a reaction, and then they just started regressing and they lost all their words and they wouldn't make eye contact anymore and so on and so forth. And I've heard that story, um, I, I mean, I've read numerous testimonials and heard about it from colleagues and whatnot, but I've had many patients in my own uh, practice who have said the exact same thing. So that, you know, causes you to raise your eyebrows a bit to say there's probably something to that in terms of the link um, because these are not, you know, crackpot people off the street. These are, you know, well-educated, you know, caring individuals, you know, productive citizens in our society, and they're certainly not making this up or delusional. They are seeing this firsthand with their own kids. Um, I would also, so there's certainly that um, a bit of observational evidence suggesting there might be a link. And then 
um, even more than that, um, I have a lot of parents who come in and I always ask the question, you know, when, at what age did you start noticing some regression in your child? And I would say that easily 80% of the time in my practice, um, patients say, or parents of patients on the autistic spectrum say at about 18 months. Every once in a while, it's around 12 months or maybe a little bit younger, but 18 months is 80% of the time the most common answer. And I think that that's probably maybe not just a coincidence because at 18 months, um, that's around the time that a certain combination has been a certain combination vaccine has been administered for the fourth time in the average child's lifetime, and as such, um, I, I think that there might be. A, I think that that's a, um, a a bit of observational evidence suggesting that there there could be something going on there. You know, other things happen around 18 months of age as well, but that's probably the most common thing that happens in all children or the vast majority of children in our society across the board at around that 18-month mark. So I think that there's some compelling evidence suggesting that um, it's certainly something worth looking at. Um, Another thing, uh, the last thing that I'll say on that um, question is that there's a therapy that I work with. It's something called CEASE therapy. CEASE is an acronym for Complete Elimination of Autism Spectrum Expression. And it was a it's a method that was developed by a medical doctor from the Netherlands named Tina Smits, and him, along with a few um, other homeopathic practitioners, uh, really worked to develop this therapy. And cease therapy ultimately works to uh, treat uh, individuals on the, on the autistic spectrum as well as with other disorders too. But um, it was originally developed to help, uh, for the most part, to help individuals on the autistic spectrum. It involves using homeopathic preparations of different substances to help clear residues of those um, given substances from the body of the patient in question. So, for example, you might give a homeopathic preparation of, say, the MMR vaccine, and if you give a homeopathic preparation of that MMR vaccine in an appropriate manner, um, if there was an issue with that vaccine, then you should see um, some symptoms um, appearing in, in the individual. So the child in question might have, uh, you know, developed, say, a low-grade fever, or they might become much more irritable for a few days, or they might have diarrhea for, you know, for 12 hours or something like that. Um, and then afterwards, you should see if there was an issue with the MMR vaccine in the first place, then you should see an improvement in the overall symptom presentation of that um, child in question. And that's sort of the uh, what cease therapy works on um, uh, addressing. And it's not just vaccinations. It could be other medications. It could be environmental exposures to things like heavy metals or formaldehyde or other chemicals or things like that. So cease therapy is certainly not just looking at vaccinations. Um, however, it's, I think, another piece of compelling um, information suggesting there might be a link where if we use a homeopathic preparation of a vaccine with the intention of clearing any residue that might be um, might have been um, non-beneficial to the patient in question and there's a clinical improvement after that it really causes you to raise your eyebrows saying well if we're working with this therapy and it seems to be helping and in some cases helping a lot, then maybe there is some link as far as vaccinations go. So I I would never say that vaccines cause autism because I don't think that there's um, definitive enough evidence to say that we can say that as an absolute truth, um, but there certainly seems to be a link where vaccines and in some individuals might contribute um, in part to their autistic uh, autis- ah, excuse me, autism spectrum expression. And have you used the um, deceased therapy in your practice? Yes, I use it all the time. And you've seen good results? 
Uh, I have, yeah. Um, it's something that I haven't been using for that long. Um, I've been using it for about the last year or so. And um, with these therapy, it's not something where we expect to see overnight results with. So it's something that we oftentimes will work with with an individual for with with a patient on the autistic spectrum or another that um, could be used with other diagnoses as well um, for you know a series of months or years. Um, it's something that's sort of an evolving process that we work with. Uh, at least in my practice, I work with while I'm using a bio, like a more traditional biomedical approach with things like diet and supplements and things like that. But I would say that the cease therapy is probably. It's probably the therapy that I'm the most excited about um, as far as working with individuals on the autistic spectrum because with a biomedical approach, we can see really great results and and it's something that can definitely lead to a lot of clinical improvements. But the CEASE therapy is what I've been turning to when we seem to be hitting a plateau with a biomedical approach or if we're seeing um, improvements you know, from, from month to month with treatment. But... Uh, we're wanting to kind of hit the accelerator pedal a bit more to see if we can get faster results. I find that the C therapy has really been um, uh, helping out with that a lot. So it's it's probably the therapy that I'm the most excited about. Um, so it's not part of the traditional biomedical um, model, but um, it's it's probably something that I'm I'm using. Uh, I'm using a lot of it, and I'm I'm seeing a lot of uh, encouraging results with it so far. This one, and the nice thing about homeopathy. It's easy for individuals to comply with, mm-hmm. too. So that's really nice. Absolutely. So Brian, there's I think... no bad... oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say there's there's no bad taste, so any child can take it, which <laughs> the hugest obstacle with pediatric patients is actually getting them to take things. But fortunately, when you treat enough pediatric patients, you find out what they'll usually allowed to go down the hatch, and, and it's not too bad. But homeopathy is always just a sigh of relief for everybody in the room because you know that the kids are going to take <laughs> it without complaining. You're right. I think that you must have a toolbox the size of an 18-wheeler. <laughs> <laughs> I need a bigger clinic, yeah. Yeah, no, that's excellent. There's so many options and there's so many. You've summarized the test so nicely and also explain the treatments that we've gone through so far so nicely. So I'm going to take and let you take just a minute break, and we'll be back with Watch Your Prescription for Balance with Dr. Brian Raid. At Firefly Willows LIVE, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back to Watch Your Prescription for Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Glenna Calder, naturopathic doctor in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And this evening, we're speaking with Dr. Brian Wade, a colleague of mine, naturopathic doctor in Sackville, Nova Scotia. And we're discussing the biomedical approaches to the autistic spectrum disorder. Welcome back, Brian. Thank you. What we're going to move on to is 
maybe a little bit more practical things for parents or more um, advice for the practical side of the, the treatments and how implementing them at home, what would you say are the biggest challenges for parents of children with autism when following a naturopathic or biomedical protocol? Uh, biggest challenges well, varies from from family to family, but uh, dietary changes are typically the biggest challenge. Um, anyone who has a child or knows a child on the autistic spectrum knows that they stereotypically tend to like to eat from a very limited range of foods. Um, those foods tend to be rich in gluten and dairy and sometimes refined sugar, so it's really they're oftentimes eating the op- oftentimes eating the opposite of what they should be consuming. Um, so things like um, like pizza and uh, chicken fingers and macaroni and cheese and toast and burgers and things like that. Um, so trying to change their diet into a gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free diet or, you know, heaven forbid, a GAPS diet, which is uh, earlier a more elaborate diet, which is actually devoid of all complex carbohydrates. So there's no grains or starches like potatoes and sweet potatoes and things like that on the diet, um, which another favorite food of most autistic kids is French fries as well. So there's potato in there. Um, it, it, it can be quite challenging to make those changes. So I always tell parents that this is going to be a process. You know, you if you can change the diet overnight and nobody's pulling their hair out, amazing, but that's likely a fantasy. It's not going to happen. Um, it's going to take, it can be something that can be phased into over the span of a few months. And if your child, you know, loves eating toast for breakfast every morning, then try gluten-free toast. And if they don't like brand A, then try brand B, C, D, or E, um, you, it's just something where you have to work on trying different recipes and trying different things and, um, say, cutting their cow's milk with, say, almond milk or rice milk initially and, you know, starting with a 50-50 split and gradually making it more, um, you know, non-dairy milk, altern- uh, non-dairy milk as opposed to dairy milk. So there are different tricks that I can recommend, but it really falls on the shoulders of the parents or caregivers to make those changes and I'm I'm certainly there as a, a you know cheerleader and there to give any advice that I can but every child is so individual that some of my best recommendations work well for some kids and they just don't work at all for others um, in terms of implementing dietary changes so that's definitely a process um, the other challenge is giving certain supplements uh, as I mentioned earlier I've learned a lot of the supplements that go down the hatch quite nicely um, however, there are certain oftentimes crucial supplements that just unfortunately don't taste very good and it can be really hard to get those in. So making smoothies can be a wonderful thing because you can hide a lot in a smoothie or even things like applesauce, for example. You can hide a lot of fairly nasty-tasting stuff in there. But sometimes it's just really, really hard and sometimes we're not able to have children take the full therapeutic dose of what they really need to be taking to get um, the best results. But that's where things like, you know, the cease therapy and other types of homeopathy or other types of treatments that don't have um, a foul taste to them can come in handy. I always say, you know, we're going to do the best that we can. And if you're only able to give 25% of the dose of the, you know, bitter tasting B vitamins that, B vitamins, B complexes, if you've ever tried one, the powder out of a capsule, it tastes very, very bitter. It doesn't taste good at all. Um, If they can only get 25% of that dose, it's not the end of the world. We'll just figure out uh, how we can support their system, the the child's system, in another way, and we just do the best we can. But definitely diet and uh, bad-tasting supplements are the two biggest challenges, I'd say. And that's that's pretty much the majority of naturopathic medicine, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So true. But you're right. I find the same thing in my practice. It's a little bit, bit different 
an adult, if it's a children we're recommending, giving recommendations to, it's, I find it's really important also to say to the parent, it's not going to happen for 24 hours. If it does, it's truly a miracle, but it's something yeah. to work towards, like a few months or eight weeks or ten weeks, as long as every week there's some good stuff being added in. Absolutely. So my next question would be, what do you think is not known about autism or not well known about autism that you would really like to see as common knowledge? Oh, I think the main thing that I'd like uh, to be known as, uh, that I'd like to be have become common knowledge is that there are um, things that can be done to try to address the root causes of um, autism spectrum disorder. Um, so I guess number one would be realize, having people realize that there are underlying causes that are known because unfortunately, autism, in my experience, is largely viewed in our uh, in, in society in general as being just sort of a, a bad luck affliction that it's, it's happening for some reason. There might be um, genetic causes in some cases, but only about you know one to five percent of all autistic cases are due to a true genetic disorder. Um, that for most cases, it's just what they call it idiopathic that they don't know what causes it. And I think that that leaves um, parents and caregivers really quite frustrated, um, and or frustrated, um, but also feeling really helpless to say like, "Geez, like this is going on with my kid." And especially, you know, if my child used to be like, you know, a perfectly neurotypical uh, little one, and then they started to regress, and what's going on? And you know, is it something that I did wrong, or whatever it happens to be? It becomes really, I think, um, uh, frustrating, and, and gives that feeling of helplessness. So realizing that there are underlying causes that can um, contribute to the formation of autism spectrum disorder I think is really important. And then furthermore, realizing that there are um, achievable and reachable and accessible treatments that can be used to help correct those underlying causes I think is the main thing that I'd like um, everybody to know. Um, That would be fantastic. What advice would you give parents and caregivers of someone with autism? Uh, the ones who aren't currently undergoing a biomedical treatment would be your question? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. I would say that they should undergo their child or uh, their, their autistic individual that they're responsible for um, pursue some biomedical treatment. So that would be my, my main advice. Um, I think that, you know, working with the conventional um, uh, resources and tools that are available is fantastic, but my recommendation would be that until such a time that you feel that your child has um, achieved a state of neurological well-being that everybody is happy with, including them, I think that it's certainly worthwhile to um, pursue say a biomedical approach or or a naturopathic approach or or pursuing some type of treatment to help um, improve their overall presentation uh, well-being. Perfect. So in your practice, what is one thing you've noticed has helped those with autism more than anything else? I would say that I mentioned earlier the methyl B12 um, treatment is probably the most um, powerful thing that I've seen, um, at least in ter- at least in terms of providing the most um, immediate results. Um, diet is definitely up there as well. Um, diet is probably the cornerstone of treatment for most 
individuals on the autistic spectrum because if diet's in place, then nutritional status is going to improve, so it's going to help correct deficiencies, it's going to help reduce inflammation, it's going to improve neurotransmitter balance, it's going to help reduce the overgrowth of any microorganisms in the gastrointestinal tract. So the list just goes on and on as to why diet is important if there are sensitivities afoot. Um, and I would say that the cease therapy that I mentioned earlier, like using the homeopathic remedies to help clear any um, uh, uh, detrimental residues of different substances in the body would probably be the, uh, as I, I mentioned earlier, I think it's the probably one of the most uh, important therapies that I'm that I'm using now because um, I've really seen it make a big difference for children who had otherwise been you know doing all the right things and we were you know seeing progress, but it really can help to hit the accelerator pedal or get patients over a plateau um, where if they've improved, say you know. 25 to 50% and they're kind of stuck there, which is still good. It's a lot better than 0%. But um, if they get stuck, then the cease therapy can really get them over the hump and really start uh, making much more dramatic improvements. Excellent. So the next question I have for you is about autistic spectrum disorder, but also about all conditions. And I'm curious about your answer. Why do you think it's so difficult for mainstream health professionals to to really believe that nutrition and the toxic load that the individual is carrying can have a really profound effect on the development of chronic illness? Uh, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think that, I think part of the challenge is that there isn't um, a nice, concise uh, consensus on the role that those things can play in the development of different um, health disorders and disease. So I think that if if it was a more cut and dry issue, if it wasn't such a complex and convoluted issue, then it would be much better, um, uh, much better understood and addressed by the conventional healthcare system. You just gave us a huge amount of information on biomedical and naturopathic approaches to the autistic spectrum disorder, treatments, the testing, the diagnostics, and great discussion for parents. Is there a website and contact that you could leave with us for those individuals who would like to get in contact with you? Sure. Our website is sackvillenaturopathic.com, and our front office number is 902-252-3080. And is there any website that you can think of or book that somebody might want to, would be a next step for reading about the autistic spectrum disorder. Absolutely. So the best website, and it's the easiest website in the world to remember, is just autism.com, and that's the website for the Autism Research Institute. And if you go on there, there's a link to a lot of great reading material and, and other um, references and things like that. So that's a fantastic resource. And I'd also recommend the website um, for CEASE therapy as well. So it's um, CEASE, like C-E-A-S-E-therapy.com. And that's an excellent uh, website that goes over what CEASE therapy is all about. Oh, excellent. Those are two great resources. I've never been on the CEASE therapy one, so I'll do that myself. And I thank you very much for taking the time out of a busy day. I know you've had a busy day with patients today, Brian, to come on the show. And I do hope in the future when I ask if you'll come back that you would and we'll talk about another interesting topic. That sounds great. It was my pleasure to be here. Excellent. And for those individuals who are listening, I thank you so much for listening. And if you know of anyone who may benefit from listening to this, whether it's a caregiver or a parent of somebody with autistic, autism or the on the autistic spectrum disorder, 
you can just share the link that is on Facebook, Dr. Glenna Calder, MD. And the link that's for the show tonight will be there, and the show will be archived. And um, it will also be on my web my uh, website, and I'll also be sending a, a link for that to Dr. Raid. Thank you very much, and have a great night, Dr. Raid. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.